Good morning. Glad to have you guys this morning. My name is Jamie. For those of you who are new, I'm one of the pastors here. We're really excited that you're here with us this morning. Um, thanks to Mark last week and Hannah Beth this week for leading in James's absence. He and Marilyn are enjoying a getaway together, and we're excited for them about that. And so um, as we jump in this morning, before we do, let me just throw out a couple of brief announcements. One, uh, next week, next Sunday morning, we're going to have a child dedication. And um, if you have a baby, a newborn, an infant, that you would like to participate in that, essentially, it's just an opportunity for us as uh, the people of God to vocalize on our end as parents that we want to point this child to Jesus and for the church to affirm and get behind that um, as a a supplement to what's happening in the home. And so we'd invite you to participate in that. Um, If you have a kid that is relatively new to the world, you'll probably be getting an email from me even in the next 24 hours. So um, if no one else, my child will be there, and it'll be awesome. And I'm sure, according to how well I know my wife, she will be wearing all white, and it will be adorable. Um, The other announcement will be this. Uh, We have a a guy who's coming up this fall to start an internship with us. I mentioned this last week, uh, moving up from Orlando. I've known him for a couple years um, he'll actually be moving mid-June um, and assimilating, kind of getting you know, his feet underneath him before starting that internship in the fall. But he's looking for a place to live. Um, he's open to anything, um, a room to be rented out uh, if you need a roommate, uh, a basement, above garage apartment. He doesn't care. He just wants to be here and serve Jesus in the church. And so um, if you uh, know of any opportunities that I can point him to and connect him to uh, here in the area, that would be fantastic. Just tap me after the service or shoot me an email. Let me know of, um, of, of anything that I can pass his way. Um, so with that being said, um, we're in the middle of a sermon series entitled, I Wish Jesus Hadn't Said That. And if you're new, it's okay that you're here in the middle of this sermon series because It's not necessarily connected from week to week. We're just taking a look at some of the most difficult statements that have come out of the mouth of Jesus. Um, We don't believe that everything that Jesus said uh, during his public ministry was easily palatable, was easy to swallow. We believe that Jesus said some things that would absolutely make it inside of a fortune cookie, things like ask and it will be given to you, things like judge not that you be not judged, things like do not be anxious about Uh, anxious about tomorrow, but we also believe that Jesus said some really difficult things, things like deny yourself and take up your cross, things like love your enemies, things like no one comes to the Father except through, through me. And so I've said this for weeks now, if Jesus is nothing more than a philosopher, a good teacher, then we can kind of highlight the things in the Bible that we like, we can rip out the things that we don't, and just treat it like every other book that's ever been written in human history. The problem is Jesus never claimed to be Simply a good teacher and nothing more. A moral philosopher and nothing more. Jesus claimed to be able to forgive sins, according to Matthew chapter 9. Jesus claimed to be able to grant people eternal life, according to John chapter 10. Jesus claimed that if you've seen him, you've seen God the Father, according to John chapter 14. That if Jesus isn't God, he's a a raving lunatic on the one hand, or the devil of hell, the father of lies, truly. And so we're faced with the question, who is he? That it's actually more honest, more academic, more intelligent of you and I to say that he was the David Koresh of his day, a crazy man, than to say that he was simply a good teacher. That it's more honest, more academic, more intelligent of you and I to say that Jesus is the true father of lies than to say that he was simply a good teacher and nothing more. That he doesn't leave that option 
to us to call him good teacher, moral philosopher, and nothing more. He claimed to be God, and he either is or he's a bold-faced liar or a raving lunatic. And so you and I must make our choice. And so I've said this for weeks now, that if you're on the fence, I hope that you'll encounter a collision with Jesus and that you'll be sensible enough to either call him a raving lunatic or a liar, the true devil of hell, or my prayer for you is that you'll bend your knee to him and call him Lord and God, as C.S. Lewis would say in his unpacking of this whole idea of lord liar or lunatic and for those of us who are professing christians in the room my hope is that we would bend our knee fully to jesus in glad submission to to all of scripture as the supreme authority for our lives not just the parts that are easy to swallow and so if you have a bible you can go ahead and open up to mark chapter 13 We'll be in verses 32 through 37 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in one of the seats nearby in front of you underneath in the basket underneath that seat. You can grab one of those Bibles and flip open to Mark chapter 13. Take that Bible with you as the church has given to you. If you don't own a Bible, we're excited that you would be exploring the truth claims of Christianity with us and that you would be the owner of a Bible if you don't have one. So please take that. As you see up on the screen, the title of this sermon is Stay Awake. Some of you literally need to do that because you stayed awake last night to watch Mayweather fight Pacquiao. And and, uh, you were very disappointed in the end, I'm guessing, with the $99.99 that you spent. Because from all that I've heard, Mayweather floated like a butterfly, but he didn't sting like a bee. And uh, there was a lot of dancing around, not a lot of boxing your way out of certain situations, uh, a lot of disappointment on the internet this morning. And so as a result of that midnight fight, which they postponed till midnight so that more people could spend more money on pay-per-view because it was just flooding in by the hundreds of dollars. And so some of you literally need to take that to heart. Um, it's meant to be received spiritually this morning. Let's read Mark chapter 13. We'll begin in verse 32 and work our way through verse 37. It says this, this is Jesus speaking, But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Let's pray. God, for those who may have come into this room who don't profess you to be Lord and God, I pray that there would be a great awakening that would happen this morning in their lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. For those of us who profess to be Christians in this room but are walking uh, in somewhat of a slumber, that you would awaken our minds and our hearts to the wonder of the gospel, to the wonder and and the glory of who you are. God, would you do that? Uh, There's no possible way for me to wake dead or sleepy souls in my own strength. So, Holy Spirit, you're going to have to do a miracle once again this week. So would you do that? We lift these things up to you, Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, now, you notice immediately there's a little bit of a connecting point from last week's message. We looked at the parable of the dishonest manager, and here in this morning's text, Jesus talks about putting servants in charge as the master 
leaves the house. And so we're going to see a little bit of a connecting point between the idea of stewardship, as we talked about last week, all those things that God has entrusted you with and how you use that for his glory. And and I would argue that uh, to the degree that you steward what God has given you, has entrusted you with for his glory, is the degree to which you are actually spiritually awake. I think there's a a connecting point. This passage is really interesting. It's a little controversial because we're going to look at some of the verses leading up to verse 32. And I think there will be a little bit of, uh, you sure that we should interpret the Bible this way? And so we may, there may be some skepticism, and I'm okay with that. I think it will be helpful for us, though. Really fascinating passage because uh, we live in a world obsessed with the end times, which is what Jesus is driving at here, uh, which is why we have movies like Armageddon, uh, Independence Day, Waterworld, really strange movie, Dawn of the Dead, Shaun of the Dead, The Day After Tomorrow, Interstellar, and one of my favorites was filmed in my wife's hometown, Zombieland. Uh, We have TV shows like The Stand, The Leftovers, Revolution, Falling Skies, Terra Nova, Doomsday Preppers, and our very own, right down the street, The Walking Dead. We have music like It's the End of the World as We Know It by R.E.M., Doomsday Clock by the Smashing Pumpkins, 1999 by Prince for those oldies in the room, Apocalypse Please by Muse, Skyfall by Adele, Radioactive by Imagine Dragons, and uh, last but not least, and I should get some cultural props, I'm really cool for knowing this one, As the World Falls Down by David Bowie, which was originally in the movie Labyrinth, which is just a movie that rules for those of you who have seen it. When it comes to books, if you go to the internet... There's actually a section on Barnes & Noble's website entitled End of the World and Post-Apocalyptic Science Fiction. And if you go to that section of Barnes & Noble's website online, there are 2,277 results that show up just on Barnes & Noble alone, much less if I had gone to Amazon to see what type of results might have popped up there. The most popular on the subject, aside from the Bible, is the Left Behind series. Sixteen books were written between 1995 in 2007, seven of those books reached number one on the New York Times bestseller list. This is crazy. In 1998, the first four books in the series held the top four spots simultaneously on that list. And that's despite the fact that the New York Times bestseller list doesn't take Christian bookstore sales into account. Total sales for the series have surpassed 65 million copies. As we look out on the world for earthquakes and famines and wars and antichrist. And I'm going to argue that there's a very different interpretation that I believe we should look at when it comes to chapter 31 of Mark's gospel. Um, When you go online, if you Google zombie apocalypse, which I did this week, I don't know that I've ever done that before. But one of the first websites to show up on the list of search results is the CDC The Centers for Disease Control. Why, you ask, would the CDC show up whenever you Google zombie apocalypse? Well, listen to this. I quote from the website. It says this. As it turns out, what first began as a tongue-in-cheek campaign to engage new audiences with preparedness messages has proven to be a very effective platform. We continue to reach and engage a wide variety of audiences on all hazards preparedness via zombie preparedness. So we're so enamored with the apocalypse that the Centers for Disease Control has now used a zombie apocalypse as a platform for reaching our world, for reaching our culture 
with, with the information that they want us to understand, to better educate us. We live in a world obsessed with the end times. And ultimately, I'm going to argue this morning, there's nothing wrong with thinking about what's to come, that there's an entire branch of theology devoted to that. It's called eschatology. It comes from the Greek word eschatos, which means last, and the Greek word logia, which means the study of. So study of the last things. I actually had to take a class on that in seminary, a class on eschatology. The problem is not with us thinking about what's to come. Jesus actually commands us to do that, to think ahead, to be forward thinking, going back to last week's parable of the dishonest manager. But the problem is, I'm going to argue this morning that We spend way too much time seeking to answer the wrong questions. We're more focused oftentimes on the when and the how of Jesus' return as opposed to the who and the what. The who is Jesus, the what is worship, and ultimately we as believers will enjoy worshiping Jesus forever. And that if we can wrap our minds around that and actually believe that not just at a mind level but at a heart level, you'll practice good eschatology at that point. Um, This chapter of Mark's gospel is what's commonly referred to as the Olivet Discourse. took place on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. Um, You can find parallel accounts if you want to go read about this later on in the week in Matthew chapter 24 and in Luke chapter 21. It's the longest speech of Jesus in the book of Mark. And it's one of the most misinterpreted chapters in all of the Bible, I would argue. That many people think that this chapter provides the key to unlocking the mystery of when Jesus will return. And yet... I'm going to argue this morning, Jesus teaches us the exact opposite in this chapter. That Jesus is very clear about two things in this morning's text that I think it would be really hard for us to argue with. Number one, Jesus says, no one knows when I will return. Three times, verse 32, concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Verse 33, you do not know when the time will come. Verse 35, you do not know when the master of the house will return. Jesus says, no one knows when I will return. And then verse 2, Jesus says, stay awake. He says it four times. Verse 33, be on guard, keep awake. Verse 34, in the story that Jesus tells, the doorkeeper is commanded to stay awake. Verse 35, therefore, stay awake. Verse 37, and what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Right? I think Jesus is very clear here. We don't have to do a lot of exegetical work this morning to understand what Jesus is trying to say to us. On the one hand, he's saying, you don't know when I'm coming back. And on the second hand, as a result of that, keep awake. Really simple. Now, this passage assumes something, namely that Jesus is actually returning. And in the Bible Belt, the worst thing you can do is assume anything. So the first question this morning that I want to ask is very simple. Do you believe that Jesus will, in fact, return? If you you don't believe that Jesus is the risen Son of God, seated, exalted on his throne, if you don't believe that, then your answer to that question is going to be an emphatic no. If Jesus is nothing more than a good teacher, a moral philosopher, then the answer to that question is going to be an emphatic no. He's dead. He's buried somewhere on planet Earth. His bones have rotted. But remember, Jesus didn't leave that option open to us to call him nothing more than a good teacher. Jesus says, I'm God in the flesh. Call me crazy. Call me a liar. Call me Lord and God. But don't call me a nice teacher and nothing more. So the question for us this morning is, is Jesus a crazy man? Is he a looney tune? If so, we should pack this thing up and call it a day. It's really weird if we're getting up on Sunday mornings to come sing songs to a lunatic. At that point, we're all lunatics in this room, right? The other question would be, is Jesus a bold-faced liar? If so, Christians are to be pitied more than anyone else on planet Earth. 
Look at us. We've been deceived by the true father of lies. How sad and pathetic that we would devote our lives to a man who lied for several years as he walked planet Earth. But Jesus just might be who he says he is. The hero who entered into human history to save us all from ourselves and our sins. And if so, we're not lunatics. If so, we're not to be pitied. There's purpose to this. We should be coming together to sing and to marvel at the one who came to redeem us, to reconcile us to God and to one another. Now, here's the even bigger problem in the Bible Belt. We're not swimming in a sea of professing atheists, agnostics, deists. They're coming. We're on the verge of the death of Christendom, and so it's coming our way. And so maybe you're encountering more atheists than you did five years ago, more agnostics than you did five years ago, more deists than you did five years ago. But the greater problem for us right now as we speak, I would argue, is that we're swimming in a sea of churchgoers who say that they believe that Jesus is king, that Jesus will return, but functionally live as atheists, functionally live as agnostics, functionally live as deists. Let me answer a question this morning. How do you know if you're a functional atheist? And I think this is a crucial question for us in the Bible Belt. How do you know if you're a functional atheist? Answer, you say that you believe there is a God, but you live as if there isn't. That's a huge, massively huge piece of the demographic pie here in the Bible Belt. Check, check, check. Mindless, heartless, Christianity, which is no Christianity at all. And it muddies the waters big time for all of us. This passage assumes that Jesus is returning. Many in our context profess that that's true, but live as though it's not true at all. So again, do you believe that Jesus is king? Do you believe that he's glorious and good? Do you believe that he will return? And not just biblically, not just theologically, but has that seeped into your heart? Do you functionally believe that and live in light of that reality? If your answer to that question is yes, then the question becomes this. Are you asking the right questions when you look at Jesus' return? Are you looking at and asking the right questions with respect to his second coming? Are you more concerned with the who and the what, or are you more concerned with the when and the how? In in this morning's passage, the clear imperative, you see it four times, is what? Stay awake, right? Many people seek to make the imperative of a text like this, try to figure out when he's coming back. That's the big thing to walk away with. Let's sit around with, you know, calculators in our Bibles and try to, you know, figure out, do the math and figure out when he, he may be returning. And Jesus commands us in this passage not to do that, but to stay awake. Three times in this passage, he tells us that we can't do that. Verse 32 says, But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. He says that the angels don't know when he's returning. He says that he doesn't know when he's returning. He says that the Father alone knows when he's returning. What does that mean? What does Jesus mean when he says that even he doesn't know. If he claims to be God, God knows everything, right? How do, you, how do you reconcile that? How do you make sense of that? There's a Christian doctrine known as the doctrine of the hypostatic union, namely that two complete natures exist in the one person of Jesus, a fully divine nature 
and a fully human nature. That, God, that Jesus is both fully God and fully man, the God-man. You can't make sense of that in your rational mind. There's no great analogy that will help youth pastors along the way. I've tried to do that with the hypostatic union and the doctrine of the Trinity, and it just doesn't work. It's beyond the realm of comprehension. There are just some things that you can't box God in on theologically. Somehow Jesus is not two persons. Jesus is one person. Yet in the one person of Jesus Christ, both natures, human and divine, exist. Paradoxical as it may seem, Jesus in his divine nature has infinite knowledge. Yet Jesus in his human nature has limited finite knowledge. This verse is affirming the humanity of Jesus. It's like verses where you see that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. Does that mean that Jesus is not all wise? As eternal God? Of course not. But it's communicating that Jesus is fully human, that he has taken humanity on and, and added it to his divinity in the incarnation. Now, here's why that's helpful for us. I don't want to spend a lot of time on that because I don't think that's the thrust of this passage. There are other passages that would devote more attention to that, like Philippians chapter 2. But here's why I think that, that this is helpful. If we ask ourselves the question, do I have a, a human nature or a divine nature? If you're not crazy in this room, your answer would be what? You have a human nature, right? Only crazies in the room say they have a divine nature. We all have a human nature. And here's what that means. That means that if we attempt to wrap our minds around the when and the how of Jesus' return and, and somehow um, box God in in that way, we're communicating in our human nature a superiority to Jesus in his human nature. Jesus' return is never described as predictable. It's always described as sudden, like a thief in the night. Anybody seen Home Alone? If you haven't, shame on you. That's one way you can repent this week is to go watch that, even though it's May. You should watch that movie. Part of that movie, a couple of crooks, Harry and Marv, right? They're, they're specking this house. They're looking to, to go in and to rob this wealthy family of all of their possessions. only problem is little Kevin got left home alone when the family left to go on a trip, a Christmas trip as a family, over to France. And uh, at one point in the movie, Harry and Marv realized that there's actually a kid in the house. They're trying to figure out what's going on there. It looks like there's activity in this home, but we know this family has left. And then they finally see the kid cutting down a Christmas tree. It's actually the top of a pine tree, I think, and turning it into a Christmas tree. And they finally realize what's going on, and they decide we're, we're going to rob this place even with the kid at home. The only problem is... Uh, Harry says at one point uh, to Marv, he says, we'll unload the van, we'll get a bite to eat, then we'll come back about 9 o'clock. That way it's dark then. Uh-oh. Like, you just told the kid what time you're coming back. So now he develops this plan that we all love if you've seen the movie. He establishes how he's going to use his micro machines and broken tree ornaments to try to take these guys out. And he's sitting with his mac and cheese at the dining room table when the clock strikes nine. And he says those famous words, this is my house, I have to defend it. And then he goes and everything unfolds to these guys' demise, right? That if you're a good thief, you don't tell people when you're coming to rob them of their possessions. And Jesus says, I'm coming back like a thief in the night. You're not going to know when that happens. So stop looking out for the signs and start looking out for your soul. Now, this is where it gets really tricky, okay? Because I think historically, the church has taught something different than what I'm going to argue this morning. Although really good scholars and commentators and theologians would argue exactly what I'm going to unpack this morning. If you look at the first 
31 verses of this chapter, you're inclined to go, well, what about the wars? What about the earthquakes? What about the famines? What about the persecution? What about the preaching the gospel to all the nations? We've heard that sermon, right? What about the abomination of desolation? That sounds apocalyptic. That sounds like walking dead language. What about false prophets and false Christs? What about the darkened sun and moon, the falling stars? That sounds like end times kind of language. What about the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory? What do you do with all of that? My guess is that many of us have been raised to look at those things and to look at our culture and try to see where the matches take place and then to try to connect the dots and determine when Jesus is going to return. With every earthquake, we wonder, is he coming back? With every leader that rises to power that doesn't love Jesus and read his Bible daily, we wonder, is he coming back? With every, with every famine, with every war, we wonder, is this it? Like, is this the end? Is he coming? And I'm going to argue this morning that we've missed it, I think. That the first 31 verses of this chapter of Mark's gospel account are not meant to point at all to Jesus' second coming but very simply, rather, are meant to point to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Let me unpack that for a minute, and then I'll tell you why I'm even unpacking this, okay? That the signs in the first 31 verses have already happened. And, and if you read that, you're probably thinking, he's crazy. Is he serious right now? Like, we've seen all this stuff already take place. I'm going to argue, yes, we have. Now, he, here's why I'm spending time on on these verses verses 1 through 31 they're not our passage for the morning but but here's what i think i think it helps to solidify the argument that we need to stop trying to pinpoint jesus's return and start living as though he could actually return at any given moment so i think this is crucial for us i'm not saying that we all sit around with our calculators and bibles and try to figure out dates but i am saying that we lean heavily on other people who do that, who sit at home and do that in their offices or basements or wherever that goes down. And the minute they say things, we, we, it tickles our ears. We begin to think, maybe they're right. Maybe, maybe this is what's going on now at this point in human history. And so I think this is crucial for us so that we can actually functionally walk out of here and live as though he could come back today. So that being said, let me give you just a few reasons why I believe that the signs in the first part of this chapter are not meant to predict Jesus' return at all that they've already happened, why I believe that they took place between the time Jesus said these things in 70 AD when the temple was destroyed. Number one, the phrase these things, if you go back to verse 4 in chapter 13 of Mark's gospel account, the phrase these things in verse 4 is talking about the destruction of the temple in verse 2. So context is everything, right? We are notorious in the Bible, but for just grabbing a verse, slapping it on a coffee cup or a really bright t-shirt and then just, you know, calling it a day, context is crucial Every word takes place in the context of a sentence, every sentence in the context of a paragraph, every paragraph in the context of a chapter, and so forth and so on. Jesus sets up the context for everything he's saying in, in verses 1 through 4, even this morning's passage. He says this, look at verse thir- or chapter 13, verse 1. And as he, Jesus, came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings looking upon the temple? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Verse 3, And he sat, and as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? What things? 
the destruction of the temple, going back to verse three, 2, everything Jesus had just said. And then verse 5, Jesus began to say to them, and then you get everything coming out of the rest of chapter 13. That the context is the temple. Another reason why I think Jesus is talking about the temple in the beginning of this chapter is that there are localized details in the first 31 verses. You get things like verse 14. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. This assumes that people are in Judea. You and I are not in Judea. We are in the bubble, right? It's going to take a really long flight for us to get to Judea. It also assumes that there's enough of a heads up for people to flee for the mountains. According to verse 36, we're not promised a heads up when Jesus returns. You also have verses like verse 18 that says, pray that it may not happen in winter. We have a real problem if that's a global Jesus is returning type of language because it's always winter somewhere, just like it's 5 o'clock somewhere across the world when the clock strikes 12, right? That if this is localized, there's a possibility that it may not be winter when the temple is destroyed. I'll give you a third reason. Jesus says that those with an earshot, according to verse 30, won't pass away until all these things in verses 1 through 29 take place. Verse 30 says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. That When the word generation is used in the Gospels, and it's used 27 different times, it's defined every time as the lifespan of a person. So he's saying Peter, James, John, Andrew, boys, gather in, listen up. In your generation, these things I've described in verses 1 through 29 will take place. And lastly, the fourth reason I would argue that is the word but in verse 32 indicates a shift. That Jesus has said all these things in verses 1 through 31. And then in verse 32, he says, but, however, concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father that Jesus just spent 31 verses saying, look for the signs. You can know, you can know, you can know. Then he gets to verses 32 through 37. He says, nobody knows. No one can know. I don't even know. What's he doing there? I would argue that there are two events that Jesus is describing here. One in verses 1 through 29, namely the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 A.D., the other described in verses 32 through 37, this morning's passage, the second coming of Jesus. Now, here's where people get skeptical. That picture that Jesus paints in verses 1 through 29 sounds like the apocalypse, right? And that, that sounds like apocalyptic language, which is why we've been inclined to assume that Jesus is talking about his second coming, his return. But what if I told you that everything in the first 29 verses of this chapter was fulfilled before 70 A.D. What if I told you that there were false prophets, false Christs leading people astray prior to the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D.? Theodos in Acts chapter 5. Judas the Galilean in Acts chapter 5. Simon the Magician in Acts chapter 8. Bar-Jesus in Acts chapter 13, and the list goes on. What if I told you that there were wars prior to the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D.? That 20,000 Jews were killed in Caesarea? that 10,000 were killed in Damascus, that 13,000 were killed in Scythopolis, that 50,000 Jews were killed in Alexandria. What if I told you that there were earthquakes prior to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD? There were earthquakes in Crete, in Colossae, in Smyrna, and in Rome. When you go to Acts chapter 16, you see Paul and Silas in prison. Anybody read that story? You know how those guys were freed? 
massive earthquake. Shook the foundations of the building, opened the doors. It was so violent that it even shook the shackles off of their very hands and feet. What if I told you that there were famines prior to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD? That there were actually three famines that occurred under the reign of Claudius alone? What if I told you that followers of Jesus were persecuted prior to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD? This one's not too difficult to see. Acts chapter 4 and 5, the apostles were brought before the Sanhedrin. Stephen was martyred according to Acts chapter 7. James was martyred according to Acts chapter 12. Paul was stoned, Acts 14. He was imprisoned, Acts 16. He was brought before governors and kings, Acts 22 through 28. The disciples, with the exception of John, were all martyred. And John was exiled to an island, as we'll see momentarily uh, with the direction I'm going with this. What if I told you, and this is a really difficult one to swallow, What if I told you that the gospel was proclaimed to all nations prior to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD? That the known world today didn't look like the known world in Jesus' day. That if the people in Jesus' day saw your globe, they would be mind blown at all of the land mass that exists on this planet. That the known world in Jesus' day was considered the inhabited regions of the Roman Empire surrounding the Mediterranean. Which is why in Luke chapter 2 verse 1, around the time of Jesus' birth, we're told in those days a a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now do you think they went and tapped the Japanese and said, you guys need to get over here, you need to be a part part of this? Mother Russia? According to Romans chapter 1 verse 8, we're told, Paul says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, saints in Rome, Because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. How far did did their faith reach in terms of its proclamation? Did it make it to Brazil? Did it make it to Central America? We're told in Colossians 1 verse 6 that the gospel has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing. Paul says to the saints uh, in the church in Colossae that, that the whole world is, is hearing the gospel and it's bearing fruit and growing. That the, the whole world, the language of all nations, was very different in Jesus' day as to how we would understand that language. That by the time the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD, this is crazy, the gospel had gone forth from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth as people knew it. What if I told you that the abomination of desolation in verses 14 through 19 was the destruction of the temple in 70 AD? That the phrase abomination of desolation actually comes from Daniel chapter 11, verse 31. That the phrase was originally used about 500 years before Jesus came onto the scene and was fulfilled about 200 years originally uh, before he came on the scene. In 167 BC, Antiochus Epiphanes uh, came in and dedicated the temple in Jerusalem, to the Greek god Zeus, that his soldiers had sex with prostitutes in the temple of God, that they abolished Jewish sacrifices in the temple and sacrificed pigs there. It was a true desecration of the temple of God. And here Jesus is now saying, you're going to see another desecration of the temple to come. We know that in 67 AD, the zealots made the temple their headquarters and appointed their own high priest who made mock sacrifices. Jesus says, when you see that, you run for the hills because it's coming quickly. And it did in AD 70. The temple was destroyed. 
What if I told you, this is crazy, what if I told you that the darkened sun and moon and falling stars in verses 24 and 25, the cosmic vocabulary there is not apocalyptic at all? What if I told you that if we interpreted Scripture with Scripture, we'd see something very differently here? That if you go to Isaiah chapter 13, verse 10, we get this language, for the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. You know what that's describing? The destruction of Babylon. That you see the destruction of Egypt described in Ezekiel 32 verse 7. God says, when I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon shall not give its light. That we see the description of the destruction of Edom in Isaiah chapter 34 verse 4. And it says this, all the host of heaven shall rot away. And the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall, the stars from the sky, as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. That this is biblical language of God's judgment coming and overthrowing an earthly power. What if I told you, and this might be the most difficult of all to wrap our minds around. What if I told you that the Son of Man coming in the clouds in Mark chapter 13 is not the language of Jesus' second coming? That this language originally comes from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, 14, where we get this language. It says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. That this is the language not of descension, not of coming from heaven to earth, but of ascension. That Daniel's vision is the coming of the Son to the ancient of days, which is the language of God the Father, to receive glory and power, a throne of dominion. That this is the language of post-resurrection ascension. That this text is not, in fact, talking about Jesus' second coming, but rather his supremacy as risen king. That the gathering of his people from the four corners of the earth is a display of his power as victorious risen king. That this is meant to encourage the disciples in the midst of all hell breaking loose as it's going to happen when Jesus leaves and ascends to the right hand of the Father, that he wants to let them know that I sit on the throne, I'm king, and I'm not going anywhere. That all dominion and authority and power is mine. Now, now I get it. For, for some of us, and, and this is me included, we've heard this chapter used to try to predict Jesus' return as king for so long that it's hard to wrap our minds around the possibility that Jesus might not be talking about his return at all in verses 1 through 31. If you want more notes, I got like four pages. I'll get them to you. I just don't want to spend all my time on this. But I do want us to be uh, mindful enough to consider that when we sit with the scriptures, we might not have heard it correctly every time we sit down and, and think historically of what we heard along the way, that we need, to, we need to check ourselves. We need to look at context. We need to see uh, what, in fact, God might be saying and whether what we've heard along the way is true. I love this phrase by G.K. Chesterton. He says this, It is only the fool who tries to get the heavens inside his head, and not unnaturally his head bursts. The wise man is content to get his head inside the heavens. That some questions are meant to remain questions. That the command in this morning's text is not figure it out. Like look at all the stuff culturally and and try to wrap your mind around when I'm coming back. But rather, the clear command 
clear imperative in this morning's passage is stay awake. And so the question that I want you to ask yourself for the remainder of our time this morning is this, as we finish out, am I awake? Am I awake? I've shared this story with you before. My freshman year of college, fell asleep at the wheel. I was driving from campus back home, three and a half hours away from where I grew up. I was going back home for my own birthday party, which made it even that much more devastating to celebrate with some old high school friends. And I did the whole bit. I got the the Mountain Dew, the the beastly one, and uh, rolled down my windows, had cold air blowing in. It was January. It was freezing. Turned on the AC on top of that. Had my radio blasted as loud as it would go to the point that I was, you know, in danger of blowing speakers. And yet I fell asleep and it didn't happen with the occasional head nod that kind of let me know that this might be coming. But rather for me, it was one nod of the head and I woke up in the ER with a shattered ankle joint, my jaw broken in three places, hip fractured amongst a a number of other injuries that when we're at the wheel driving we'll do anything that it takes to stay awake anything we've got all of our gimmicks in place jesus is saying this morning whatever it takes stay awake stay awake don't slumber don't fall asleep don't let your eyes get heavy if you are asleep wake up because i'm coming and it could happen at any moment. Here's what I want to do for the next few minutes, and I think this will be helpful for us in the Bible Belt. I want to just unpack a few symptoms of spiritual sleepiness, and, and, and you use this as a diagnostic test on your soul to kind of see where you are in all of this. Just a few symptoms of spiritual sleepiness. This list is not exhaustive. Number one, you're not fighting sin like you once did, that your passion for the pursuit of, of holiness has been squelched. That you're in the ring, you're like Mayweather and Pacquiao, you're, you're in the ring, but you're, you just got your hands by your side, there's not even a fight going on, that you're just taking it on the chin over and over and over again. Another symptom will be you're not convicted of sin like you once were, much less actually fight it, that your heart has grown cold, that you have no conviction, no godly grief when it comes to sin in your life. Another symptom would be this, that the gospel is a past and future tense reality in your life, but, but not a present tense power. And so when we use the language of the gospel, you go, oh, yeah, yeah. Like years back, I, I prayed to receive Jesus. I, I believe the gospel. And I'm looking forward to this day to come when he'll return and, and set everything right. But between those two bookends, it's just kind of this zombie-like walk to the finish line so that there's no excavating of idols, no awareness of present tense sin and unbelief in your life, no understanding of how the gospel speaks a better word into those realities that you're presently living in, no preaching of the gospel to yourself. Maybe that phrase even sounds odd to you. Another symptom would be you don't love the Bible like you once did. The Bible used to be food for your soul. It used to be sweet like honey to your lips. But now the very words of the God of the universe seem like a a hassle. Just one more thing to do. Another symptom would be you don't trust God like you once did. Maybe at one point you you trusted in his character, his sovereignty, his goodness, his compassion, his power, his grace. But then somewhere along the way you got kicked a few times. Maybe even by the church. And now there's just a mistrust in God and, and his character. Maybe you're not so sure about him anymore. Maybe another symptom, you're, maybe you're apathetic 
toward the church. Maybe your response is, man, I, I love Jesus. The church, eh, I can give or take the church. I'll, I'll check some boxes along the way to make people happy, make God happy. But ultimately, I'm not going to give my life for the church. And Jesus would say, I gave my life for the church. I love the church. I bled and died for the church. You don't get me without my bride. Another symptom would be this, and this is the final one for me, but maybe you can think of more. Maybe you're apathetic toward the mission of God. Maybe you once had a zeal for people to meet Jesus. Maybe at one point you were a risk taker for the glory of God. It's easy to do that in the first year of a church plant, and then all of a sudden you you just kind of start to to coast to become comfortable, and the the risks become less and less for the glory of God. The zeal is lost, and somewhere along the way we start to play it safe. I met with a, a new friend of mine this past week, fellow church planter in the Atlanta area. We sat over a cup of coffee and we just kind of talked about the Bible Belt and Atlanta, in particular Southwest Atlanta, this corridor of the city, and what you know what's going on culturally, spiritually, what what God's up to. And one of the things that he said, and this is my paraphrase of his statement, uh, really struck me. He said this. He said. In other parts of the country outside of the Bible Belt, Christendom is dead and the corpse has been thrown out. In the Bible Belt, Christendom is dead and yet we're keeping the corpse around and the stench is just awful. That we have church buildings everywhere, mausoleums, and yet the Bible Belt is the land of the walking dead. That it's a land filled with functional atheists, those who say that they believe that God is real but live as though he isn't. That it's a land filled with people who come in like zombies week in and week out, and maybe this is you, and sing songs so mundanely uh, with lips that proclaim his glories, but hearts that are far from him as Jesus even addressed the Pharisees. It's a land filled with people who profess to be alive while the stench of Christendom's corpse lingers. I'm going to show you my hand right now. Maybe I shouldn't do this. Some pastors would say, no, you shouldn't show your hand. You should tell people later that that's what happened. I'm going to show you my hand anyway. I don't care. Most conversion stories for people in this church are going to sound like this. I thought I was a Christian. Now I see that I wasn't. I thought I was awake. Now I realize I was dead. I was asleep. That we're not going to see a lot of people checking boxes that say, today I want Jesus to be my Savior and King. If that happens for you, we'd love to know that so we can kind of follow up with you and you know, help to connect you to other people in this church and pass off some resources that will help you as a new Christian. So please let us know if that happens for you. But I don't envision us seeing a lot of those kind of scenarios happening. What I envision is people two years from now going, I thought I was a Christian in 2015. Now I realize I wasn't a Christian at all. I thought I was awake, and I was not awake at all. I was asleep. I was, I was dead. Ask yourself this morning, am I awake? And listen, when I, when I put that question before you, it's not because I, I care a lick about numbers in this church. I'm not trying to gain another profession of faith or add something, you know, in terms of uh, what we can then put before people and say, look what God's doing in this church. That is not the point of that question at all. I could not care less about that, okay? But I'm asking that question because I believe that there are zombies in churches across the southeast and, and really across the world, but there's, there's a saturation of that in the Bible Belt. And, and I think we should be terrified at the reality 
that we're sleeping in the midst of the gathering to worship Jesus as king. Jesus says over and over and over again, stay awake, I'm coming back. Don't let your eyes get heavy spiritually. Remember what I said earlier, the problem is not so much with us thinking about what's to come. The the problem is that, that we're trying to answer the wrong questions oftentimes that ultimately the most important questions are not when and how, but rather who and what. And the who is Jesus, the what is worship, and we'll be enjoying worshiping him forever and ever and ever. And it's going to be amazing that he will return to make everything sad untrue. As we close this morning, let me attempt to shake some of us out of our slumber this morning in a way that the religious elite might be inclined to mock. I want to read you the last story from the Jesus Storybook Bible. And if it helps you to close your eyes as I read this, then by all means do so. If it helps you to get a vision of the king. It's entitled A Dream of Heaven. It's John's Revelation, last book of the Bible. And it goes like this. John was one of Jesus' helpers. He was old now and living on an island, which might sound nice, except it was a prison. The leaders put him there to stop him from talking about Jesus. But I'm sure you don't think a little thing like being in a cell, in a prison, on an island, in the middle of an ocean could stop God's plan, do you? One morning, Jesus appeared right there in John's cell. Jesus' eyes were bright, shining like the sun. I'm going to show you a secret, John, Jesus said, about when I come back. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. Write down what you see so God's children can read it and wait with happy excitement. Then Jesus gave John a beautiful dream, except John was wide awake and what he saw was real and one day it would all come true. I see a throne and on the throne is a king and the king is Jesus and around the throne people are bowing down. They are giving him their treasures. There are loud cheers and clapping. Clapping and bright laughter like this, uh, like a thousand waterfalls. And everyone bursts out singing a new song. This is our king. The lamb who died so we don't have to. Our rescuer. All honor and glory forever and ever. And every creature everywhere in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea joins in. And then from all around, a wide, immense, beautiful silence. And I see Satan, God's horrible enemy, thrown down, defeated. I see a sparkling city shimmering in the sky, glittering, glowing, coming down from heaven and from the sky. Heaven is coming down to earth. God's city is beautiful. Walls of topaz, jasper, sapphire, wide streets paved with gold, gleaming pearl gates that are never locked shut. And where's the sun? Where's the moon? They aren't needed anymore. God is all the light people need. No more darkness. No more night. And the king says, look, God and his children are together again. No more running away or hiding. No more crying or being lonely or afraid. No more being sick or dying because all those things are gone. Yes, they're gone forever. Everything sad has come untrue. And see, I have wiped away every tear from every eye. And then a deep, beautiful voice that sounded like thunder in the sky says, Look, I'm making everything new. 
It was hard to squeeze all John saw into words and fit it onto a page and cram it into a book. All the words on all the pages of all the books in all the world would never be enough. I'm the beginning, Jesus said, and the ending. One day, John knew heaven would come down and mend God's broken world and make it our true, perfect home once again. And he knew in some mysterious way that would be hard to explain, that everything was going to be more wonderful for once having been so sad. And he knew then that the ending of the story was going to be so great it would make all the sadness and tears and everything seem like just a shadow that is chased away by the morning sun. I'm on my way, said Jesus. I'll be there soon. John came to the end of his book, but he didn't write the end because, of course, that's how stories finish, and this one's not over yet. So instead, he wrote, Come quickly, Jesus, which perhaps is really just another way of saying to be continued. Are you awake? Do you functionally find yourself at a heart level vocalizing those words, come quickly, Lord Jesus. I want to see you. I want to see your face. I want to bend my knee to you as king, physically, in your presence, and enjoy making much of you forever. Jesus says, stay awake. I'm coming back. It's going to happen. In a moment, we'll take communion. If you're a Christian, this meal is for you. Uh, We take communion here as a collective proclamation of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Uh, We take communion here by taking the bread and dipping, dipping it in the cup, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, the cup representing his shed blood. If you're a professing Christian, as we prepare to take communion this morning, sit with these questions. Um, Number one, are, are you a functional atheist? Do you say that you believe that there's a God, but live as though there isn't? Number two, are you asking the right questions with respect to his second coming? Are you more concerned with the when and the how, or are you more concerned with the who and the what, namely Jesus and the worship of the king forever? Number three, are you truly awake, or are you one of the walking dead, contributing to to the stench of Christendom's corpse? And lastly, Maybe that's not the question. Maybe the question for many of us is that you're not asleep, but maybe you're getting drowsy. Are you losing your zeal? Are you losing your sense of wonder and awe when it comes to the gospel? Is there any fight left in you? If you're not a Christian, my prayer is super simple for you this morning. It's that God would call you out like he did Lazarus to come forth, to wake from the dead, to wake from your sleep, that your eyes would be open to the unfathomable love of God revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ who lived the life that you couldn't live, who died the death that you and I deserve to die as our sins were put upon him and he was punished in our place. Yet we know that he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead and he is sitting at the right hand of God the Father and he is in control. He does rule. He does reign. All power and authority and dominion are his and he is coming back. And my prayer for you is that you would turn to him in faith and experience the great joy that Christians experience at the thought of him actually returning. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C 
www.thebeanpodcast.com.